You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 1st of December 2022 on Monocle 24. India commences its presidency of the G20. Pakistan's Taliban make a grim declaration of intent. And is it possible to teach too many languages? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Somnath Batabayal and Lynn O'Donnell will discuss all the day's big stories. Plus, we'll have Henry Rees Sheridan's latest letter from New York City. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by Somnath Batabayal, lecturer in media and development and international journalisms at SOAS, and by Lynn O'Donnell, columnist for foreign policy and former AP and AFP Kabul bureau chief. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello, hello. Uh, Lynn, you're, you're 24 hours too late. Had you been here this time yesterday, you could have joined in the obnoxious Australian nationalist gloating at our vanquishing of the Danes. As it was, I had to do all the obnoxious Australian gloating myself. That's a pity, because I'm very good at it. (laughs) (laughs) Was there anything you would like to say to our Danish listeners? Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you guys. Um, I I, I have been starting uh, during the current uh, thing in Qatar by asking our guests for their relative uh, levels of interest in the World Cup. Um, Lynn, aside from Australia's mighty triumph over Denmark and our inevitable crushing like bugs of Argentina on Saturday, have you been taking much interest? This one leaves me a little bit cold, I'm afraid. Um, the the lead up to it, the number of people who were killed building the stadiums, the corruption, the FIFA, um, the intern. What's his name? Infantini's yeah. appalling display appalling, yeah. of hubris at his press <laughs> conference. Um, all of that has really put me off. The last minute. Um, alcohol ban um you know I, I you know and it's i i do like mass hysteria events i usually get very um <laughs> much caught up in the uh in the excitement i jump up and down in front of the tv with the best of them uh, but this time no and, and Somnath, I appreciate that this game is played with a sort of largish white ball rather than a small red one and that nobody has a bat and there are no stumps involved. And the ball doesn't swing as much it, it, in the Exactly. So, so you may find it somewhat bewildering, but ha- have you been paying any attention at all? I have, actually. Um, this is because of my eight-year-old who goes to school here and has therefore picked up such bad habits. Uh, <laughs> and I can't get him, you know, get him to stop. Uh, he's an Arsenal fan and is very, very involved. So each evening we do go through all the games and mm-hmm. who has won. So I've been keeping, uh, because of him uh, mm-hmm. especially, and we've been watching the England matches together. Uh, he also follows Argentina because of Messi. I know it'll be a very, very difficult affair for him. Well, I, mean, you, you, <laughs> I feel you, you, sorry for him well, already. I know, I know. You, you will have some difficult parenting to do. I I on know, Saturday know, evening, it'll, but, it'll be very tough. But but I, but I think the, the the young man can absorb a valuable life lesson from this. That the defeats are all right. D- defeat is character building, and the Socceroos <laughs> all respect for them for the kind of position they took before they went. So you know, I I I'm, I'm with you. 
Fantastic. Good to hear. And with support like that, how can we possibly fail? Uh, But however, on with the show. And as of today and until this time next year, India holds the presidency of the G20, the intergovernmental talking shop, which includes 19 economically significant nations individually and the EU collectively. India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi accepting the keys to the G20 from Indonesia's President Joko Widodo last month in Bali said that he would, quote, more or less, make full use of this opportunity and focus on global good, world welfare, peace, unity, sensitivity toward the environment and sustainable development, which will keep him busy. Uh, Somnath, are you... I don't. <laughs> are, are, you, are you holding your breath uh, for Narendra Modi to deliver all of the above by this time next year? Yeah, I, I hope he starts at home. Uh, mm. Unity, uh, environmental concerns, not selling of the land to Adani and uh, the Reliance Group, all of that. Um, but action speaks louder than words Indeed. here, you know, and um, especially um, today's, uh, today's uh, yesterday's statement uh, on Russia, you know, and we have been going agog with it. And I, I really can't find anything to be, to latch on to. He's spoken about unity and his kind of, there's a mild rebuke of uh, mm. uh, Russia. But if you see how his government has behaved in the past year or so, uh, the recent meetings between external affairs ministers of both countries, the kind of shopping list Russia has sent and India wants to indulge in, the continuing buying of gas. If he has to show any leadership in the G20, he has to take this seriously. This is, uh, I mean, words are empty after Mm. a point. And uh, at the moment, I don't find anything really hopeful about this. It's a big words. Uh, somebody has written a very good speech, probably from the Nehruvian era. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, well-educated. But uh, we'll see what comes out of it. Um, Lynn, do we have a clear sense uh, yet, given that India has n- had now, you know, the thick end of 10 months to make up its mind about what it thinks about Russia's escapade in Ukraine? Do, do we understand where India actually comes down on this? Um, it starts at home, I think. There's 1.5 billion people in India, and most of them are very poor. Mm. And I, you know, I'm going to name drop here. I interviewed uh, Imran Khan, the former Prime Minister mm. of Pakistan, a little while ago, and I asked him these sort of questions. You know, as a leader of um, a big Muslim nation, he's never come out and criticised China because of um, for the way it treats Uyghur Muslims, mm-hmm. for instance, what America calls a genocide against a million. Um, Chinese Muslims. Um, And on the day that Russia invaded Ukraine, Imran Khan got off a plane in Moscow and said, golly, it's exciting, isn't it? (laughs) And and I asked him about it. Why haven't you criticised China? Pakistan has very close economic and military ties with China. He said, every everything that I say and every policy that I make is going to have an impact economically on the people in my country. Mm -hmm. And they are poor and they are vulnerable. And um, I might think that the foreign policy of a particular country is wrong or misguided, but I can't say that because of the potential impact. And I think that Modi finds himself in the same situation. Buying cheap oil, you know, I can't blame him for that. What do you think, Somnath? Does Modi have... We've talked a lot in these shows about Modi's overt nationalism in terms of domestic politics, but does he have any real um, ambition, as some leaders do and some don't, of being any kind of figure on the world stage? Oh, he definitely does. He wants to leave a legacy. And I think he, mm. he's, he already knows he is. You know, the, 
the world's largest populated country has already ruled it for what nearly eight, eight six years is probably mm-hmm. going to get another term so and he's reshaped the trajectory of the country completely you know from a pretty much a secular country to a, mm-hmm. something more on a communal line you know his uh, his forced us to rethink our constitution almost you know and how elections are held uh, how our majority behaves um but i you know lynch is coming back to the point which uh, you made with pakistan and india i i india's uh, economic position is different there are 400 million people living below the poverty line i completely take that mm-hmm. but it's a bigger country and i think economic decisions are there and the cheap oil you mentioned is also there but it's a political will of how you you know there are difficult decisions to take and ultimately it depends on the political will and india can withstand it has enough in foreign reserves to withstand uh, the pressure mm. so uh, ultimately it is what the state is deciding to do pakistan i agree with you on, i mean you know and i'm very surprised that imran khan made such a candid statement and kudos to you for getting that out of him uh, it it's often i mean indeed so but it's amazing how much more candid politicians become once they're not in office once uh, that's true that is oh i indeed. thought he, I, oh, sorry i thought he was still there okay right right uh, um, but lin is there a, i mean i understand what you're saying and it's actually entirely possible to understand what narendra modi and imran khan are thinking if that's what they're thinking just in terms of pure pragmatism of getting resources to my own poor people who need it but does there come a point or might there come a point where it becomes clear to imran khan and narendra modi and anybody else still on the fence on this that putin is 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 a losing hand and that at some point there will be a comeback if you've been seen to support him well i think that what you said somnath about um uh, what modi said about the war he made a very he made it very clear that he is against putin's actions against ukraine and um he's made that clear but he still wants to have an economic Stake uh, relationship yeah and um that's i guess that's pragmatism um he, so yeah you're right he's trying to have it both ways yeah tony blair had a very interesting fra- phrase on this he called it pragmatic moral moralism <laughs> in, in in relation to sierra leone mm, mm. Uh, but just a final quick thought on this Somnath uh, India's foreign minister Subramanyam Jayashankar visiting Moscow next week um what would be the point of that do we assume that he's going to take a seat at the end of Putin's weird long table and try to persuade him to call the whole thing off or is this India actually trying to leverage Russia's need for friends i think it's a very yeah, it will be much more economic if you have seen the team that is going there mm. you know he has um officials from the ministry of agriculture petroleum natural gas ports and shipping finance chemicals and fertilizers so you sh- see what he is going this with is, this is not this is not a peace mission this is not a peace mission at all and also this is a fifth time this year mm. both parties are meeting so in it it's it's a long relationship that they're talking about so i don't think uh, i mean you know there might be an official statement which comes and says you know uh, lessen the activities in ukraine but this is not a peace building mission this is an economic And, and I think you also have to note that the longer the war goes on the greater the need in Russia for what India has to sell. Yeah. I mean in fact uh, Reuters has this report that you know uh, Russia has sent a shopping list to, uh, 14 pages yeah. uh, long to several countries and India is one of them. 
Well, let's take a look now at the country next door, because earlier this week, almost as if deciding that things in Pakistan were just not chaotic and dangerous enough, Pakistan's Taliban varietal, the Tariq-e-Taliban, called off the ceasefire they had agreed with Pakistan's government in June. Very shortly afterwards, i.e. yesterday, the TTP carried out a suicide bombing in Quetta. Four people were killed and 27 more injured. Several police officers were among the casualties. The target was a police truck on its way to serve as a security detail for medical workers delivering polio vaccines. Um, Lynn, first of all, I think there is an amount of confusion caused by referring to the TTP and your good friends in Afghanistan Mm -hmm. as the Taliban. But is there a relationship between them at all? Or are they two entirely separate, discrete enterprises? No, a rose by any other name <laughs> is still a rose. It's the same mob. Um, I think there was just a, a, a convenience for them uh, in in you know deciding you you be the Pakistan Taliban and we'll be the Afghanistan uh, lot. Um, since the Afghan Taliban took over in August last year, the TTP has found safe haven in Afghanistan, which is quite ironic because the Afghan Taliban had safe haven in Pakistan Mm. for the 20 years of its war. But what Afghanistan has become is a geopolitical containment um, uh, uh, centrifugal point for global jihadism, and the TTP are now part of that. And they've come back to bite the the Pakistani state. And this uh, declaration that the ceasefire was over was really just a formality because attacks have been going on and getting bigger for the last few months anyway. Uh, Somnath, this attack in particular, do we have to consider the depressing prospect that the TTP knew exactly what they were bombing and that they were targeting polio workers at one remove? seems to be, you know, they're targeting security personnel and, mm. and uh, the killing of so many policemen uh, clearly shows that they have very good information, which is troubling. Uh, look, again, as Lynn says, this is a mess of Pakistan's own make- making. You know, much as I sympathize with what's going on there, the 20 years of support they have provided to the Taliban, st- you know, state weaponry, money, mm-hmm. all that has gone in, and now they're fi- finding it suddenly difficult to Real, uh, difficult to accept that Taliban in government is a very different uh, beast than when they were uh, in opposition. Uh, and th- one of the things I think which the Pakistan tried to, the, the Pakistani military tried to do uh, in April this year, the aerial bombing in Af- Afghanistan, which they did, and messed it up again with 20 children were killed. Again, mm. the action that lack of intelligence, lack of proper military operation techniques so you know uh, it's messy also they find that they cannot push Taliban very hard because they have India to think about India's presence in Afghanistan so it's a very very difficult situation which the Pakistani government finds itself in Um, Lynn, is it possible to gauge roughly the amount of popular support the TTP might have in Pakistan? And and the thing that I think it's always worth bearing in mind when you talk about stuff like this, where Pakistan is concerned, is that it is an enormous country. And frankly, even if you have only 1% of it supporting an outfit like the TTP, that's 2.25 million people. And that, that would be quite the problem. In the last uh, couple of months, there have been enormous demonstrations, spontaneous demonstrations in the towns and cities of Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, 
mm. uh, which is where the TTP held sway for so long. Uh, and people there have made it very clear that they do not want a return of the reign of terror of the TTP. And um, they are very, also very disappointed that the government and the military are not ensuring that there is no return of the TTP. So the people are being let down. Um, millions of them were displaced over the decade that the TTP were there. Many were killed. Uh, schools where girls couldn't go to school, women weren't seen on this. You know, the whole Taliban landscape prevailed. They don't want to return to that and they're making it clear. Just a final quick thought on this, though, Somnath, and this this may be a self-answering question, but is there any indication that the, the Pakistani state, whoever is in charge of it from uh, one month to the next, has any capacity to deal with an organisation like the TTP? Well, I mean, as I said, they were finding it extremely difficult because... Uh, of the support Taliban gives them, the porous border between uh, mm. Afghanistan and Pakistan, uh, and how embedded, I mean, in, and the Pakistani state has been real, ISI, the military establishment has worked very closely with the Taliban. I mean, it's very difficult sometimes to even differentiate at times um, between Taliban and the TTP because they're all part of the same establishment, mm. which the Pakistani state supported. So, politically, they find their hands tied because of Taliban and, it's, and what India might do in Afghanistan and how much they might push. Also, um, because of this long relationship, disentangling is a difficult act. Well, let's does move, it make sense what I uh, say? It, it does make an amount of sense for as much as this is ever likely yeah. to. Actually, Lynn, I'll put a variation on, on the question to you. I mean... Is it clear what the TTP want? Are they pursuing some sort of achievable or even negotiable end, or are they one of those, and they do exist, tiresome gangs of fanatics who really haven't thought it through much beyond blowing things up and causing trouble? I think they want what the Taliban want. They they want to overthrow the Pakistani state and replace it with um, an extremist, um, uh, what lawless, um, uh, I mean, Sharia, Sharia law, law is, is what they um, have asked governed mm. um, state. And they have seen that this has been successfully um, achieved in Afghanistan. So why not try? But you know, they were pushed out of of um, Pakistan into Afghanistan in 2014. You might remember that terrible attack on the military school in Peshawar mm. when, um, you know, 130 kiddies were among 140 dead. And so the military um, retaliated and did get them out of Pakistan for a while. But now they are emboldened like jihadists everywhere by the Taliban victory in Afghanistan. Well, let's move along and look at a question of language. And nobody, at least nobody sane, disputes that it is good for children to learn other languages. There is often, however, considerable and anguished argument over what other languages children should learn. Nigeria plans to teach school kids in local languages, of which Nigeria has hundreds, instead of Nigeria's official language, English. Henceforth, primary school will be taught in the local language. And we may now look forward to impassioned disputes across the country about what the local language actually is. Sophie's Monaghan Coombs has more. A new Nigerian government policy aimed at the nation's primary schools will promote teaching in local languages rather than English. The national language policy stipulates that instructions of pupils in their first six years of schooling will now be in their mother tongue. 
As English is Nigeria's official language and used as the common language of teaching, implementing the policy will prove difficult in a country where more than 500 languages are spoken. Despite the challenges, Nigeria is not the first West African nation to promote local languages over those that were implemented because of colonization. In Mali, drafts of a new constitution call for changes to the country's languages. While 13 local languages have national status, only French has the distinction of being an official language, used in government business, on road signs and in broadcast. It's clear that the languages spoken across the African continent have a resonance that goes beyond words. Sophie Monaghan, Coombs there. Um, Somnath, I'm genuinely not sure what I think about this. On the one hand, I do think it is it is good uh, for kids to learn more than one language at school, and I have spoken from this chair before about my lingering resentment of the fact that I was raised on a monoglot island uh, where we're basically taught that if you just go overseas and shout at people in English, that'll work out fine. Um, but this, in Nigeria of all places, you can see this causing at least as many problems as it solves, not least... How do you decide which is the local language when you have upwards of 500 to choose from? Uh, I don't know where to start with this. <laughs> I mean, being, uh, coming from India, where there are over 2,000 dialects and 28 official languages. Well, in, in a, indeed so. Yeah. And, yet you, uh, and you have a similar thing, I guess. You do have this unifying or a unifying language, albeit one imposed upon you or introduced by the colonizer. Introduced is the right word. You know, what we have done to the English language uh, is a different story altogether. <laughs> and, you know, all over the world, uh, more people speak bad English today than uh, what we do here. Well, um, th- this is something Australia and India have in common. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're joining hands somewhere. But I'll go back to a story, I mean, a personal story to kind of enumerate what you're saying. In Calcutta, though I was in, from Assam, all my cousins suddenly were told in school that English would be pulled back and they would be taught in Bengali. Mm-hmm. And English would be introduced in seventh or eighth standard. And the drop they had in their... 10th standard board exams, the results, was remarkable. And an entire generation um, uh, suffered this in jobs, in competitive exams, which were all in English. So uh, Nigeria needs to be very careful of what they're doing. Uh, In India, we, I mean, at least in um, schools like ours, which was not private, uh, had English and also Bengali, Mm -hmm. Assamese or Hindi. When I speak four languages, you know, I wish they were European languages. (laughs) But um, uh, so that was a way to solve it. And Nigeria also has a tremendous uh, literary... Well, uh, indeed, so. You know, you know, Absolutely. Chinua has written reams mm. of the, on this, um, as has Chimamanda. Mm. And they have a very strong literary tradition. They have a very strong visual culture. Nollywood brings out fantastic films. I, I mean, there's a question of decolonization here, definitely. Mm-hmm. And it, it is embedded. And I think rather than throwing out a language or not teaching kids, the way to do it perhaps is to uh, bring out more local stories, local traditions, mm-hmm. and converse. I mean, English is n- need not necessarily be taken as an imposition anymore. We have done too much with the language to think of it as a colonizer's language today. Mm. I mean, Lynn, should the question be, especially when you're talking about the language in which primary school-aged children would, will be taught, should the question be, nice though it is to preserve local languages, and important though it is to preserve local languages, shouldn't the argument be a more utilitarian one? What's actually going to be useful for them later on? 
Oh, yes, I completely agree. And, and your point, Samnath, about how it's we're beyond colonisation now. English shouldn't be associated with a painful history. It's a it's a tool, and it's a tool for um, a, a broader life and greater opportunities. I think you know, local language is extremely important so that people know and understand and are connected to their own uh, culture and history and background and family. But being able to be part of the world in the world that we're living in is as important. I mean, there's uh, the point you both raise is an, is an important one. That num- I mean, countless countries around the world which have had English imposed on them or introduced to it um, and, and have very much made it their own and done their own thing with it. There is a variety of Irish aphorisms to the extent that, you know, we, we took the language they bought here and fixed it for them or, Im- or improved on it, and they're perfectly entitled to make that boast. Um, Somnath, is there, do you think, here an element of just... You don't lose votes by beating up on the colonial legacy or the former colonizer. Is this there's an amount of nationalist populism going on here, isn't there? Oh, absolutely, and you know, and Nigeria has had a strain of this since mm. the 1960s. As had, and, and I know India has this. You know, we constantly change names of cities and places, and in uh, you know what we call vernacular, vernacularization. I can't even get that word. Is that the <laughs> vernacularization? <laughs> yes, that's it. That's, yeah, that's it the is. word. Uh, and um, I, I mean, there's this form of nativism which really mm. doesn't help anyone. You know, and especially not. Sc- Kids who are going to government schools. I know the the strata and, and in Nigeria mm. and in India, there's more impoverished than people who can go to send their kids to private school where they'll be English educated. And then the difference becomes much more in later life. So that's the problem which I have seen in uh, India, where, in all the states uh, where governments imposed local languages instead of English. Um, there was a definite drop in prosperity levels. Lynn, what do you think? Is this one of those things which is going to end up likely being more exclusionary than inclusive? I don't really know. I, th- I think that um, as if there, if it is a case of teaching both languages at the same time, I mean, mm. we've all met people who um, English isn't their native language, but they speak it as if it is because they were taught from a very young age at school. Well, this is where I've frequently been envious of people I've met while reporting from West Africa, people who, like Somnath, speak four languages and indeed many more and mm. don't think there's anything even remarkable about that because everybody does. Yeah. But mm. they also speak English. Mm. But then you have that many more tools of communication. Mm. and And I think that that's enviable and very important. I mean, I, I, I would think that in a, instead of imposing <clears throat> local languages in school as a, a medium of instruction, just encouraging vernacular languages and poetry and reading sessions and films, that would be the way to, mm. you know, inculcate um, any... Se- I mean, if nationalism uh, uh, or patriotic uh, sentiments, if that is what the politicians are going for, that would be a much better way to talk about than saying no more English. Mm. Well, let's look now at what may be bad news for those of us who have, for many happy years, supplemented our bathroom supplies by purloining, in fact, as much as we could carry from whatever hotel room in which we had been ensconced. The EU, those guys again, is about to crack down hard on a variety of plastic packaging, including hotel toiletries, fruit and vegetable wrapping, et al. The overarching idea is to nudge business 
businesses towards the reusable rather than the merely recyclable. It is apparently often the case that the energy consumed by recycling something exceeds the energy saved by recycling it. It's a happy thought. Um, Are we enthused, Lynn, by this, even if it might mean that we start having to, and I'm glad you're both sitting down for this, take our own shampoo with us? I know, it's an, appa- it's, I, it's, an appa- it's an appalling thought. But then what you have to do is go and buy a smaller bottle to decant it in so, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> so you can carry it with you. Um, I, I was reading about this today and I noticed that there has been a backlash and um, I, I, by producers and I think that mm. um, this has to be consumer-led and there is already, I think, an awareness, a, a growing awareness amongst consumers of waste and the um, the damage that plastic waste um, uh, imposes on the planet and our lives and our futures and so I think I think anyone who is not already on board with this has just got to get with the program this is the future yeah uh, Somnath what do you think because there, there have been examples I can think of in which really determined crackdowns have been remarkably effective the the outlawing or implementing of policies to dissuade people from plastic bags for example has made a, a huge and very visible differences in some places I there are some countries I've been to where the first time I went there, plastic bags were, in fact, the distinguishing feature of the landscape, mm-hmm. uh, and now you barely see any. Yeah, no, I mean, I think this is the only time in the evening I'll disagree with you, Lynn. <laughs> uh, I don't think it can be consumer-led. Consumers go for the easiest option. If there is something easily available, we just think, oh, it's one more time. And I, uh, I would rather say that um, the state coming down very heavily would be the only way we can think about 2050 targets, which um, we have, we're trying to set. So, sorry about that. So, I'd, I'd rather uh, I'd disagree with you. I mean, the the figures in that report, which probably both of us read, we generate 180 mm-hmm. kilos of paper and cardboard waste per person in the EU. That's insane. Mm-hmm. And you know, all these deliveries, which Amazon and mm-hmm. post COVID has happened, is just increased. We don't need four pack. It's like a Russian doll. I'm trying to take yeah. out mm-hmm. in every every time. So. We are consumers. We know this is bad. I mean, I, I, re, I mean, God, I teach a course in environmental uh, law, and um, despite that, I still order Amazon. So, so yes. But if the state does impose it, and I have to abide by it, I'll definitely do. So, I think it's a good step. But again, the way the producers will react, the way the marketing and branding and uh, uh, people in companies are reacting, NGOs are already complaining about being, it being watered down. Then this has to go through the EU Parliament, then uh, nation states. So it's a long way off. It's a mild first step. The conversation has started again. Um, I hope something comes out of it. I, 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 you know, there are uh, bar soaps which I can use as shampoos. Uh, they are made and they can be kept in. Uh, hotel rooms and that bigger toothpaste can be kept and you know all of us can use from one to another. so yes I'm, 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 I'm happy to not purloin <laughs> shampoo bottles because there is an issue there though I think subsidiary to that as well Lynn which is that I think it's quite common for people I'm sure I'm guilty of this myself to think well I I diligently put all my plastic and glass and cardboard stuff in this thing which I cart out to the bin out the front once a week I've done my bit mm. but it's it's not really enough is it especially when as these reports rather soberingly note, um, it possibly does actually consume more energy than you've saved to recycle the stuff that you're recycling. 
Yeah, um, I have noticed over the past few years that the supermarkets charging for bags has meant that a lot of people are now carrying their own bags, for instance. I mean, I I, I used to be quite lazy with that yeah. and I, I have now got much better at it. I do yeah. take my own bag. But then, you know, Japan is famous for its recycling. Everything is washed and separated down to the, you know, minutia level. But Japanese products are wrapped and wrapped and wrapped and it can take you 10 minutes to get to the suite inside the bag, inside the bag, because it all looks gorgeous. <coughs> and, and that all then is recycled. So, yeah, I think that it has to be thought out. Every, everything has to be much more. It's not one simple solution. Pay, you know, five cents or 5p for a, a bag or... Um, uh, you know, it, it just has to be broader and deeper than your re- the cost of your recycling or how much energy, it, you know, it I, takes up. I did want to finish by asking you each if there is one particular form uh, of packaging that vexes you or that you've strikes you as unnecessarily wasteful. And to, to get the ball rolling, I will... I've going to admit that this may be one of those stories that we journalists refer to as too good to check but a friend of mine nonetheless swears blind he saw this in a motorway services station somewhere in the united kingdom oranges individually wrapped in a cardboard sleeve on which was printed the words citrus snack solution <laughs> <laughs> which branding fellow took part of that <laughs> i mean the, the the obvious waste there being that oranges kind of arrive prepackaged <laughs> yeah indeed <laughs> but is there anything like that that whenever you find yourself grappling with it you just find yourself thinking what are we doing um when I was living in Hong Kong, fruit was individually wrapped in the supermarkets. I find that um, almost criminal. Um, uh, I used to get annoyed with those flimsy plastic wrappers that records would come in in the days that we, you mm-hmm. know, we would get records. Um, but I'm with you on the um, on Amazon. Mm. I don't order Amazon. Um, I don't use it for a lot of reasons on principle um, because of the nature of the company. But opening a box that is then filled with plastic to get um, a very small item that is then wrapped in other things. Yeah, and more paper so that yes. it doesn't juggle around. Yeah, yeah. I, I've, and those um, beads, those polystyrene beads, I find that really uh, offensive. Yeah, so that's my thing. Somnath? My mother was shocked when she came the first time to the UK and I took her to a supermarket waitrose that cucumbers came wrapped in uh, <laughs> plastic. And she said, oh, it's so clean yeah. here. Yeah. Like, well, there's a cost. But it's shocking what, uh, how we sell yeah. fruits, vegetables. There's no need to do this. And I mean, this, the point being that this, is, this was not the way 30, 40, 50 years back. This has, we have developed a system. We can crack out of it. We need... A strong hand. I'm sorry to say again that this this has to be state led. We have to be forced out of our bad habits. Somnath mm. Batabayal and Lynn O'Donnell, thank you both for joining us. Finally on today's show, it is time for our regular letter from New York City. Here is Henry Ree Sheridan. Gwen Stefani, Alicia Keys. What do you associate with these names? For me, they recall a specific era from 2004 to 2010. During this period, Gwen Stefani was enjoying a successful solo career following the dissolution of her band, No Doubt. (laughs) 
a central component of Stefani's identity as a performer were her four Japanese backup dancers, the Harajuku girls. Stefani, a white American, referred to them as her imaginary friends. You couldn't get away with that kind of thing nowadays. But back in 2004, people were absolutely gagging for it. Alicia Keys was enjoying the peak of her career as a musician and entertainer. This culminated in her 2009 collaboration with Jay-Z, the massive international hit, Empire State of Mind. Since then, Stefani and Keys have gradually drifted away from the centre of the cultural firmament towards its periphery. Judging from a cursory scan of their Wikipedia pages, they both seem to have managed their relative declines gracefully. No really sticky scandals, plenty of philanthropy. Stefani is a judge on the TV performance game show, The Voice. Keys continues to release music and maintains a robust stable of brand collaborations. They remain popular, but the average American probably doesn't think of them very often, if ever. They are well-placed to execute one of the most highly specialised roles in US society. And that's to perform at the lighting of the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree in New York, which they did this Wednesday. There is a social convention that obtains throughout the Western world. No matter the size and location of the village, town or city, those selected to ceremonially light municipal Christmas trees have to be B-list celebrities within the local social hierarchy. The size and prestige of New York City means its B-listers are quite famous and decorated. But make no mistake, entertainers at the peak of their careers would rather be maimed than perform at the lighting of the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree. Why is this the case? In part, it's because the performers at Christmas tree lightings have to appeal to the broadest possible audience. Celebrities who can do this are not usually at the most potent stage of their careers, which is normally when they're most appealing to the youth and most unsettling to older generations. But it's not just that. Celebrities who perform at the Super Bowl halftime show also have to have very broad appeal. But they are almost always in the top tier of the US entertainment hierarchy. There's something more to why we don't allow our best and brightest to perform at the lighting of public Christmas trees. And I think it has something to do with the tree itself. The municipal Christmas tree is a double perversion. The first layer of perversion applies to every Christmas tree. A tree is meant to be outdoors, everyone knows that. But to make a tree a Christmas tree, we have to bring it indoors. The second layer of perversion is particular to most Christmas trees in public places. It's that we take a Christmas tree, an outdoor object we've confusingly decided to put indoors, and then put it outdoors again, so everyone can see it. It's like domesticating the wolf for thousands of years until we have the show dog. Then removing a show dog directly from the Crufts arena, setting it back among a pack of wolves and expecting everything to be chill. 
This double switcheroo makes the public Christmas tree an oddly suspicious and tainted object. It's necessary as a visible public marker of the festive season. We have to honour it. But we also can't afford to let our most valuable talents get too close to it. Hence the B-list Christmas tree lighting performer. I'm not trying to denigrate Keys, Stefani or anyone else involved in the lighting of public Christmas trees across the world. Like the technicians who dissolve fatbergs in sewage systems, they should be lauded for executing an unpalatable but essential social function. That was our New York radio correspondent Henry Ree Sheridan and reciting a radio script while playing the glockenspiel is not as easy as Henry makes it look. That is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Lynn O'Donnell and Somnath Batabile. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Emily Sands. Our sound engineer was Adam Heaton. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>